Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to the Cafe Scole podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be continuing our excursion studying the monastic tradition the monastic tradition in particular, with an eye towards its contributions to restful learning and education in general. And in this particular episode, we're going to consider one important aspect, one important practice of monks in the monastic tradition that I think is very rich and helpful for those of us seeking to renew restful education today. And that is the practice of keeping a flora legium, or a flora legium, if you're using the ecclesiastical pronunciation of Latin. What is a flora legium? Well, the word flora probably rings familiar in your ears. Flora means flower, and legium means, well, a collection or a reading. Uh, it's a book, a, f- a book of flowers, a flora legium. Some of you perhaps have collected flowers that you have pressed into an album, dried out, beautiful, and archived for you. Well, think of a, a, a commonplace book that is a collection of beautiful things, precious things that you want to go back to, things that you want to possess and own, things that you want to become a part of you. That's the essential idea between the monastic commonplace book or the Flora Legium. You can read about this in Jean Leclerc's book on uh, monast- the monastic tradition of education, the, the love of learning and the desire for God. And I'm following him here. And if you'd like to read him uh, directly, I encourage you to get this book and go to page 182. And um, you'll, you can read for yourself many of the insights that I hope to share with you in this podcast. Leclerc points out that the monastic tradition, or the monks themselves, did not invent this practice of recording in a book important sayings or excerpts, um, wise adages and, and passages from the great authors. Uh, it was done in the ancient world, and it was a way, an important way, of learning and directly possessing Wisdom. Uh, it was a way of doing close reading. It was a way of collecting concise and interesting and important extracts that could be used um, when you were making speeches or when you were making arguments and trying to put together proofs as a part of your education. It was a part of the medieval quaestio and disputatio these exercises in which there would be debates and discussions surrounding a particular idea and its opposition and opposing ideas. Um, Masters and students would engage in these disputatios. And by collecting 
and memorizing, as it were, possessing important ideas and insights from the great actores, the great authors, you could construct um, some pretty powerful and persuasive arguments. So the idea was that the great wisdom of the past contained in the passages from the great authors would be commonplaces in your own heart, life, and memory. They would become essentially a part of you so that you could call them forth in any kind of engagement or conversation. G.K. Chesterton comes to mind. G.K. Chesterton was a prolific reader and apparently had a great memory because when he would write, say, his biographies, say, of St. Thomas or Charles Dickens and others, he would, well, he did a biography of St. Francis and a biography of of St. Thomas. I don't think he did a biography of Dickens, although he wrote about Dickens in his in his literary life. Um, Chesterton would would quote from memory and cite from memory when he would write his biographies and other books. And sometimes he would be called to account for not getting a citation or quotation word perfect. And Chesterton, when he heard this, was apparently a bit astonished and said, I thought that literature was supposed to be the man. In other words, to Chesterton's way of thinking, if he had to go look up the citation... Perhaps he didn't have authority to actually quote it in the first place because it wasn't yet a part of him. Well, in the ancient and medieval world, it was, it was a commonplace to keep commonplaces. It was a commonplace, it was a common way of life to memorize scripture and important passages from the great writers of the past. So, The monks continued this tradition, which was an ancient tradition, except that their focus was not so much to concoct great arguments and persuasive speeches on their feet or to do scholarly research. No, their great object was to grow spiritually through contemplation. So their reading and their creations of these florilegia was born out of spiritual reading. The monks would copy out texts that they enjoyed so as to savor them at leisure and use them anew as a part of their private contemplation and meditation. So in these Floralegia, which by the way, there's many of them that have been um, preserved uh, and, and why? Well, it was because when a great florilegium had been produced, uh, they would be passed around and the, and the passages of that florilegium would be copied by other monks into new florilegia. So there was a, this kind of a multiplication of these commonplace notebooks. And the selections tended to be from a rich source of the great actores, the great authors of the past. And for the monks, this would be the church fathers. People like Basil, Augustine, Gregory. Gregory the Great was copied a lot because his writing was considered to be very helpful for contemplation, spiritual contemplation. So the sources were like flower beds to them. In fact, they used this metaphor. Of course, by the, the name of their commonplace books suggests this. If if their commonplace book was a floralegium, then they were looking for flowers 
that existed in certain flower beds, certain sources. And they regarded themselves as the bees. The bees who would fly from flower to flower, seeking the pollen and the beautiful fragrance and the, the nutrition that would come from the flowers that they, you know, pollen creates honey. And so this idea of fragrance and honey and gathering them selectively, sipping from flower to flower, this was what they considered themselves to be doing as they would collect these writings in their own florilegium. In this, in this metaphor of the bee seeking um, pollen from flowers, they're following Basil, Basil the Great, who uses this metaphor in his uh, letter to Greek men on the study of literature. And Basil says, we should be like bees. We should pass over some pagan literature that's not edifying and helpful to us. But where there is something that is good and helpful to our faith, we, like the bee, with discrimination, should go to various flowers, even, as it were, the pagan flowers, to find pollen and to make honey. Now, the books that they compiled could be used for either personal use, they often were just for personal use, but sometimes also for community reading. And sometimes they were given their own names. Now, the general name we use is florilegia, that's the plural, but they were also sometimes called sententiae, which means, well, opinions, judgments, sentences of the wise, or exurptiones or exerpta, which means like it sounds in English, excerpts, collections of the great writers, passages from the great writers. Sometimes they were even given poetic titles like um, the Book of Sparklets or simply Flores, Flowers. When the monks would you know, contemplate and gather these passages, they would also intersperse their own thoughts and aspirations, sometimes in the in, right into the text itself or in the margins of the text that they were compiling. Exhibiting the conversation that they would begin to have with these great authors. So you can imagine, say, a monk writing down passages from Gregory the Great, uh, contemplating and thinking and meditating on these passages, and then offering his own applications and thoughts and associations. And that's really what meditatio is. It's a way of integrating and thinking across your other fields of learning and other aspects of your life and trying to make connections and create harmony. Contemplation has this idea of quiet listening to the voice of God in the midst of your meditation. So there's a distinction. And of course, oratio or prayer was woven into this experience of meditating and contemplating these passages, much like the monks would do when they read scripture. This is a kind of application of the Lectio Divina method or close method of reading scripture that involved Lectio, which is the reading, and then the Meditatio, which is this kind of synthesizing and thinking across your life and learning and making harmony and associations, connections. And then contemplation, which is a, a more passive disposition of the mind, listening to what may be spoken to you 
from God through Scripture or such passages. And then finally, the fourth part of Lectio Divina was oratio, or prayer. What does one do in response to an experience like this but to offer prayer and thanksgiving and even petition to our Lord? So, the monks would read prayerfully. Uh, More about that in a moment. Sometimes the monks would actually choose ahead of time how many chapters their completed Florilegium would have, and often it was a (laughs) hundred. And this just indicates that as they were compiling their Florilegium, they didn't have a, a highly systematic way of proceeding. The number 100 was chosen somewhat arbitrarily because it's a, well, it's a number of perfection. The reading and the composition and the experience that these monks would have with these commonplace books was, according to Leclerc, ascetic, fanciful, and mystical in nature. It was ascetic because the experience would remind the reader, remind his conscience of its obligations of holiness, of service, and of love and of self-denial. And it was mystical because it promoted prayer and sustained attentiveness to the presence of God, and it fostered contemplation. In fact, Leclerc says, before the monks, who, as you know, copied so many of the manuscripts that we have today, they preserved so much of the great writings of, say, the Church Fathers, and also of the great classic pagan writers like, well, Aristotle, Plato, etc. They, they, they were copyists, as you know. They copied scripture, but they copied all kinds of great actores, all great, great authors, and passed them down to us. It's in this context that Leclerc says, before the monks copied the patristic fathers and passed them down to us, they had been appreciated through being read with a love and devotion that made reading a prayer. And this through their Florilegia, because they would copy passages into their own private book that was not going to be passed down or, as it were, published for community-wide reading, but for their own personal growth or the growth of their monastic community. It's in the Florilegia that Leclerc says, reading and prayer become one. And he quotes some of the fathers who, who talk about what this reading, or medieval leaders and scholars say about this practice. For example, it's called fervent reading, or in the Latin, lectionis igne, a kind of fiery reading. And Jean of Fécamp, is quoted who says, every day one should read and then the collections that he has, he should frequently turn over, revolvere. In other words, there should be a daily meditation, a frequent and daily meditation of these collected readings. He quotes Alcuin who says, we should frequently re-read So, that gives you a kind of sense for a a way of life dealing with the great wisdom of the past that is 
fairly alien to us today. We can Google things. We can get our own books that we do read, and of course this is important, but do we read in this fervent, devoted, revolving, repetitive, daily, contemplative way? Do we keep our own commonplace books? Now, we know of the diary and the journal, but I think by now you can tell that the monastic practice of keeping a floral legium was not keeping a daily journal. This reminds me of one important passage that I'd like to leave you with from the Old Testament. It's in Proverbs 3, because we do find similar kinds of encouragements in the Scripture to put things into our heart, right? Do you know that passage from Psalm 119? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Well, Proverbs 3 is, I think, helpful. And here's what we read in Proverbs 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Well, I think there's some Hebrew parallelism present in these passages. When, if it's Solomon writing, he says, My son, do not forget my teachings, but keep my commandments in your heart. And I think we have a parallel construction when he says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Love and faithfulness is synonymous, essentially, with the commands from this godly father. Keep my commands in your heart. Keep love and faithfulness in your heart. Let love and faithfulness and my commands, as it were, never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Of course, this is a metaphor. Write them on the tablets of your heart. So, I like the way the Lutherans talk about memorizing Scripture. I'm sure other traditions say the same thing. But the Lutherans like to say, learn Scripture by heart. I know that you likely have learned Scripture by heart. Perhaps you've learned some poems that you truly love by heart. But note that in the monastic tradition, a large portion of one's life and attention was devoted, dedicated to learning by heart the great wisdom embedded in the passages from the great writers of the past by heart. Well, I hope that's of an an encouragement to you. In my next podcast, I want to talk about how we might practically employ the practice of the commonplace book or the floor legium. But before I do that, I'll leave you with just my own most recent commonplace. Because I'm trying to keep a commonplace notebook or a floor legium. So I'm a part of a book club and we're reading some good books. And I try to note those passages that are so profoundly important to me that I think I want to possess them forever. So most recently, we've been reading The Fellowship of the Ring 
Do you know that book? And in chapter four, Frodo asks Samwise Gamgee his opinion about the elves after they have met the elves for the first time. Frodo says, do you like them still now that you've had a closer view? And Sam responds, they seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak, answered Sam slowly. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. I've been meditating on that this week. What does it mean to meet a creature such that your opinion about that creature is above your likes and dislikes? Perhaps to meet an angel would be in this category. But I began to think, is this true of other great, great things that I encounter, whether it's a, something very beautiful or a very, a very beautiful work of art? Or when I see a mountain range, is the mountain range at dusk beyond my likes and dislikes? Does it matter what I think about them? Or what about encountering Dante, this great writer of the Divine Comedy? And is it appropriate for an 11th grade student to be asked, do you like Dante? Or is Dante really such an auctor? By the way, we get the word authority from author. To have authority is just a, a Latin word. Actor means author. Actoritas can mean authority. These words have a, a wide semantic range, by the way, especially actor. But anyway, are there authors that are so great that it's not even appropriate to ask a student whether he likes it or not? Are there some great authors that are beyond our likes or dislikes? Well, that's what I've been thinking about recently, just to give you an example of how a prescient passage is working in my life currently. And I bet it's happening to you. Is it not? Are you keeping track? Are you recording? Are you putting in your heart some of these profound ideas and insights and thoughts that have come to you in your reading? Well, that'll conclude this episode. I'd like to just remind you that if you want to learn more about restful learning, there is a course on classicalu.com on Scole or Restful Learning. You can take a look at that. The first two lectures are just available to anyone at any time. And I'd also like to mention a book on restful learning by Devin O'Donnell, who is the headmaster of a classical Christian school in California. He's written a book called Age of Martha, A Call to Contemplative Learning in a Frenzied Culture. You can find that book at classicalacademicpress.com. I think it's worth your read. It's about 150 pages or so and well-researched and uh, developing insights of restful learning. So in our next podcast, we'll talk together about how to practically apply the wise practice of keeping a florilegium. Thanks for listening. I look forward to being with you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.